Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Walpaw, and I'm really excited to have with me today, uh, all the way from Michigan, Dr. Chad Brummett, who is an associate professor of anesthesiology. He's also the director of clinical research in the Department of Anesthesiology, and he's the co-director of the Michigan Opioid Prescribing Engagement Network, which is also known as OPEN. And uh, so the background here is that Chad came and gave a fascinating and really, really great grand rounds here at Hopkins uh, about the opioid crisis and some of the really interesting stuff uh, that they're doing, that his group is doing there in Michigan to try to address this. Listeners will know that I had uh, Shravani Durbakala on the show uh, a couple of months ago to talk about kind of some overview of the opiate crisis. And so I thought this would be a really nice way to follow that up with some specifics about what people can do if they're interested, since Chad and his group are really doing some great stuff. So let's jump in, Chad. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Uh, and I guess I should say that you uh, have a connection to Hopkins. You did your pain fellowship here uh, some time ago. Is that right? About a decade ago. That's correct. Okay. Well, uh, it was great to have you back to give grand rounds and certainly uh, happy to have you on the show. So let's just um, start uh, with a, just a little bit of review and overview. When we say the opioid crisis or the opioid epidemic, what are we talking about? Sure. I, I mean, I think that everybody's aware, at least vaguely, that there is a problem in the U.S. Um, this is a, a true epidemic. Uh, we have uh, we're losing currently about 115 pe- people per day to opioid-related overdose. And I think what's striking about that is when I started lecturing two years ago, I would have said 78 deaths per day, and last year I would have said 91 deaths per day. And mm. even the 115 deaths per day, that data is from 2016. So we're not even reflecting today here in 2018, which is probably more in the 130 to 150 deaths per day range. And, wow. and granted, uh, I think we are seeing more lay press around this, uh, the increase in street fentanyl. Mm-hmm. So not necessarily fentanyl diverted from operating rooms, but fentanyl made in homes by drug dealers and heroin because of uh, the sort of the downstream effects of opioid use disorder where people turn to heroin because it's cheaper and more available. Um, but really in the end, I think it's important uh, to, to note that this, most of our patients who or most of our people who start on heroin um, begin with prescription opiates that are licit prescriptions. Granted that may not have been their prescription, but, but these are licit prescriptions. So we have people dying every day and this sharp spike in mortality is certainly from more potent drugs being available like heroin and fentanyl, but but there's still a, a root cause here, which is prescription opiates. Right. So it's not like these people, or at least a lot, a large number of them, they're not going out and saying, gee, I've never done anything like this before, but give me some fentanyl. They're starting off with a prescription, whether it's theirs or someone else's, of opiate pain medicines, usually pills, right? And then they end up getting addicted and go down the road that ends them up at a fentanyl or car fentanyl or some some kind of overdose that can kill them. 
That's correct. And especially with our teens and adolescents, that's true. Uh, we are seeing as heroin becomes more ubiquitous, it, it won't surprise me if in five years we start to at least, we start to say more people have first time starts with heroin. But today, it's primarily through prescription opiates. And that increase in heroin is from the uh, increase in opioid use disorder that starts with prescription opiates. Okay. And just, I guess, another basic question. When we say opiate use disorder, are we talking about essentially what people think of when they think of being addicted, or is there more to it than that? No, that's correct. This is this is opioid addiction, but um, I, I think as the psychiatrist and addictionologist would term it, opioid use disorder. So it, it's broader, and there are new criteria um, that, that have been put out in the DSM-5. Um, I can't sort of cite them off the top of my head because I am not an addiction medicine specialist. Sure. But there, there are certainly um, other factors that go into the more granular diagnosis, but but that diagnosis of addiction is, is ter- also termed opioid use disorder. Okay, great. Thanks for clarifying that. So most of our listeners are uh, involved. They're all involved in healthcare, as far as I know. Certainly most are physicians of some kind or another, but we have other um, uh, providers, CRNAs and nurses, but in general, what, what role do providers, and I guess especially physicians, play in perpetuating this problem? Well, I think we're critical. I, I think when I, when I speak to um, doctors and nurses and, and providers around the country, I, I always point out the fact that I think I have been part of the opioid epidemic. I overprescribed during you know my career, and mm-hmm. I didn't really appreciate that I was contributing. We had this misconception, um, in part due to bad marketing and in part due to um, some aggressive policy, um, that led to this idea that opioids weren't addictive if you had real pain. I mean, we certainly were all taught that if you're in real pain or if you're just using it for acute pain, you can't become addicted. And that's just not true. And so we overprescribed. And I think especially as what when we think about what we're addressing in acute care or in particular in surgical and dental care, um, we haven't really appreciated our role in, in that when we overprescribe to people, we lead them potentially down this path of, of new dependence or addiction. And, and we also contribute to the risk for that person's family or their community through unused pills. So our while, while there's lots of fingers to, to point and we could probably spend a whole hour just talking about how we got here sure. and we shouldn't lose those lessons because we don't want to do this again. Um, I'm an action person. I'm a let's do something about this person. And I believe that we really have to be careful about spending too much time in in our conversations uh, about this problem pointing fingers because really in the end, uh, every physician and every provider, nurse practitioner, physician assistant should just simply look in the mirror and ask, what have have I done to get us here and what am I going to do to make things better? Yeah, absolutely. And so the concept of overprescribing, I think, is really interesting, right? How do you, how does one know what the appropriate uh, amount to prescribe is? Uh, presumably, it's somewhere between zero and what we're doing now. So how do we know? Well, today, uh, for many conditions, we don't. Uh, but our group is certainly working to close that gap. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been other groups working sort of step for step. The the uh, the Dartmouth group, uh, doctors Hill and Barth, have, have done some really nice work and um, have also published in parallel with our group, um, demonstrating, I think, that the Hill article published in Annals of Surgery 
uh, was one of the first articles to kind of come out and sort of, in, at least in a big splash, suggest that about 70% of the pills we prescribe go unused after surgery. And, and that's a striking number. So I'll project that out for our state, just, just the state of Michigan. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you say that there's, we know there's 1.8 million surgeries per year in the state of Michigan, um, we also see an incredibly consistent pill number of the equivalent of about 45 pills of five milligram hydrocodone. There's something about that 45 pill average that, that just holds strikingly clear all the way, whether you're talking about minor surgeries or major surgeries, 45 pills. So you could, you could suggest there's 33 pills on extra per patient. And if you think about just those that are likely opioid need, that could be 62 million pills in the state of Michigan for surgery alone. Wow. And, and that's from one year. That doesn't account for dentistry, doesn't account for overprescribing in emergency medicine or primary care. Just surgery for one year alone. Well, now I go at a, at a national level, there's 50 million surgeries done per year. Right. Right? Uh, there's 100 million procedures. So there's sadly some people that will get opioids after a colonoscopy or a cardiac catheterization. Not even accounting those, there's 50 million surgeries done per year most of whom will get an opioid, most of whom will have an overprescription. And this is just absolutely pushing us down this path of, of just vast, vast overprescribing. And, and so, you know, is, is it a billion pills in excess per year from surgery alone? I think it could be. I think it could wow. be around a billion pills prescribed in excess in the U.S. each year. Now, I think we can trim that number pretty quickly, but how do we know? Because that's a harder question. Mm-hmm. Well, we've, we've done quality improvement projects, as has the Dartmouth Group, and you're seeing other groups out there doing similar stuff, which is literally just simple stuff. This is not hardcore science, but calling patients and asking them how many pills they used. And sadly, most of them can answer the question because they can say, hold on a second, I'll go to my medicine cabinet and look. So they go to their unlocked medicine cabinet, they open it up a year ago, and they say, from a surgery a year ago, and say, well, I've still got 20 pills left, and I was given 25 or whatever it is, right? right, right. And, and, and that's sadly how we are able to do some of this work today uh, because they haven't disposed of those medications. Right. Um, and, and I think it's important. Uh, we have uh, we have actually then taken next steps to say well, what's a better way to do this. So we, we've leveraged a really unique platform in the state of Michigan. Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan has been funding surgical collaboratives around our state, and there's other collaborative structures that are beyond surgery. But there's about a half dozen collaboratives that that actually come together about three times a year and talk about quality. And and this is basically every major hospital and system in our state. And they had a patient-reported outcome or at least a a nurse-extracted data outcome measure already in place. And what we did was effectively superimpose an opioid uh, follow-up to ask people how much they used. And we've started to use this now to to inform prescribing recs. And so we put out the first sort of data-driven prescribing recs in October, um, that can be found. There's a link from our, our website, which is michigan-open.org. Um, but we put out these prescribing recs, and uh, we've certainly received feedback. This is still too high, or I would never prescribe that much. And I will just completely agree with anybody who feels like our, our recs are still too high, right. because we believe that the actual true number is lower. We also believe that um, as we prescribe less, people will take less. And we can talk more about that in a minute, why we believe that, because I think it's fascinating and really important to understand. Mm -hmm. But what we know today is those prescribing recs that we put out, there's there's a few things to take away. One is that they were data-driven. 
they were based on real prescribing and not just from a single academic medical center. Um, number two, they actually represent a, a big decrease in prescribing. So if you take Lapcoli, for example, it's about a five-fold decrease in what people are actually prescribing in the U.S. today. Um, and then even more so, if you, it's at least a, a 50% reduction from some of those more major surgeries where some people were getting 90 or 100 pills on average in a month's period. Right. And I think, I think the important piece of this in this culture of, or in this time where everybody's feeling this push for policy of five-day limits, seven-day limits, whatever those are, um, a seven-day limit could be interpreted as two pills every four hours as needed for pain, which could be 84 pills. Well, I think our highest recommended number for a major abdominal surgical condition was 45 pills, which I still think is too high. But the point is, is that it's, it's procedure specific, it's based on real data, and it's better than simply a blunt seven-day policy. Right. Now, so, for example, the lap coli you mentioned, what's the recommended number of pills for a lap coli? So right now, we, we, we've put down 15. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we were prescribing on average 50. We, we put down 15, and I will admit that was very early and conservative. Um, interestingly, uh, in a, a paper published by uh, our group, uh, first authors, Howard, Ryan Howard, um, we, uh, we actually implemented that. And what's interesting is that the median use decreased. So people who got less pills actually took less pills. And uh, as you're aware, because you've, you've seen the talk, um, this is a social psychology construct called anchoring and adjustment. When mm-hmm. we give people more, they take more. This is mainly from food literature. Um, so your bigger plate uh, of food leads to more consumption. Right. Well, we're doing this thing, and Brian Bateman from the Brigham um, published a, a really nice paper in cesarean section, uh, observational, uh, but basically sh- putting women into sort of low, medium, and high numbers of pills after cesarean section, and showed that women who got higher numbers of pills used more, but without any improvement in satisfaction, pain, or refill rate. And we see we found the same thing: reducing didn't change that refill rate. And, and, and think about that. It's such a vulnerable time after having had a baby, sleep deprivation, postpartum depression, and now we're giving women, you know, 45, 70 pills after cesarean section, right. where many of them are using a handful at most. Right. Yeah. And then they're sitting around in the medicine cabinet, as you said. So, um, and, you know, I think it's really key because some people may think, oh, well, you know, if you give them less, they're going to use less because they're afraid of running out. But that's not true because, as you just said, they're not having any any increase in pain scores when they get less pills, and they're not they're not calling for refills at any higher rate. Is that right? That's correct. So we actually um, found both in our in our lap coli project, we found that um, that the women who um, I'm mean, sorry, in our lap coli project, we found that when we went from 50 pills on average to 15, the refill rate while not significant, was actually a little lower. It went from a 4% refill rate to a 3% refill rate, and the mm-hmm. cohort was too small to see that difference. But it probably is a significant difference and potentially could project out. But, um, the, again, the same thing that, that, that uh, Brian Bateman found in women with cesarean section, you know, the women who got lower numbers of pills didn't call for refills more often. And I think it's an important piece because I certainly appreciate the surgeon's concern about that uh, potential to burden their clinic. And we know – we have some unpublished data from our group suggesting that the physician's assistants in the mid-levels actually prescribe more on average right. um, because they're, I think, probably appropriately concerned about um, about that burden of refill. Um, right. And so um, 
so I think these are uh, important concepts. I, I, we also have a, a, a another article published in Annals, Annals of Surgery last year uh, where we used a national payer data set and, and found no association between the number of pills prescribed and the likelihood of refill in a mixed surgical kit. So whether you lumped everybody together, adjusted, unadjusted, it didn't really matter. Whether you looked at six pills or, or more than 60 in a, in a cohort of patients having both major and minor general surgical conditions, there was no association between the number of pills prescribed and the likelihood of refill. People tended to call for refill about 7% of this time. Right. But um, I think you would agree what happens and what's a natural sort of human reaction is you have that one really challenging patient where it's Saturday evening and now they're calling for refill and they've gone through 60 pills and then everybody starts to get 60 or 90 pills, even though many are going to use a handful at most. Right. I'll just make sure they don't run out so because I can't um, I can't call them in anymore. So we have these this hydrocodone limit. Uh, they're moving it to a schedule two, no longer able to phone it in. Um, and so is that also potentially leading to some some overprescribing? And we again have data to suggest that it, that it is right. So yeah, it's interesting, right? So basically, providers either they don't want the patient to be in pain and they mistakenly think they need this huge number of pills to to treat their pain or they're afraid of getting bothered at night or whatever to, to write refills or some combination of the two. But obviously, as your research and others has shown, we, we know that the data would suggest that this is not the case, that the refill rate isn't higher and that the pain isn't worse. So I know you've worked uh, a fair amount on some education projects to try to you take this data and get it, get it across to the people doing the prescribing. So how have you done that? Yeah, so, um, you know, some of it's been at a smaller local level. Mm-hmm. Um, where we have uh, simply just uh, uh, the the Lap Coley project again. This is the the Howard Brian Howard's JAMA surgery paper. Um, you know, we just did a voiceover PowerPoint for this one condition and had surgery residents watch watch the video. And and then we didn't really mandate anything. There was no forced there was no forced number in the electronic medical record. But it basically had this incredible effect of reducing prescribing on average from fifty pills to fifteen with a very narrow uh, standard deviation, mm-hmm. and and there there we've reached some important marks. I, I know I know your residency role, so you'll appreciate that when we went past July and prescribing stayed low. It's my I, I'll make the bold proclamation that we have forever changed laparoscopic cholecystectomy prescribing at the University of Michigan. Right. We went past we went past to July. Right. It will it, it it will now be forever and ever this way. My only hope is is that because I believe the true number is lower, that we can go again lower, but I don't think we'll go back to 50. Yeah. Right? So I, I, I think we've, we've, we've reached a, a really interesting threshold. What was also cool, um, and again, these are data that are sort of circulating in our group and are getting closer, um, was, was the spillover effect, that uh, we didn't say anything about what to do with some other surgical conditions, but the uh, residents, for whatever reason, applied the same logic and dropped prescribing in for other conditions that we went and looked at. And again, without any, at least electronic medical record, uh, appreciation of, uh, or, or, or uh, evidence of adverse effect, no increase in refills, no ER visits. It wasn't, it wasn't as though this reduction in prescribing led to bad outcomes, but now they had a number. The number was for lap coli and they applied it to lap appy and lap bariatric surgery and thyroid surgery. And, and so, oh, you know, that's kind of interesting um, you give people a little bit of information, but I guess it shouldn't be that surprising if you think about it. How did, where did the 45 come from? 
Right. Where does that number come from? Right. It's it's an arbitrary number. We've given them now something that's not arbitrary. Right. So um, it's. I mean, I find this so fantastic. So basically, you did a, a one time voiceover PowerPoint. You targeted residents because, as you said, it's the residents or or the mid level providers like physicians assistants and, and nurse practitioners who are doing the prescribing. Right. The attending surgeon at an academic center is not the one filling out the prescription. So you targeted right. the people actually doing it. You did a one time voiceover PowerPoint, and not only did those residents reduce their prescribing for that condition, they passed it on to the new interns when they came, and yep. it fed over into other conditions without without any additional education. Absolutely. So I, I think there, there will, um, uh, I think we are specialized in medicine today, very specialized, and, and there is still a need. And we have broad work happening in knee and hip arthroplasty. We've got some early work in spine surgery. We've got foot and ankle. We're doing broader work in this space, and we know for sure that other groups have outside of our institution, as well as the Dartmouth group, who, as I said, well, I'll give a lot of credit to, they were also right there with us right from the very beginning without us really knowing, kind of doing very, very similar work, actually strikingly similar work. Um, There'll be lots of sort of Me Too work after this, and we're great with it. We don't feel or need to own this. Um, in fact, the Me Too work we think can be really, really powerful. And now what we're also excited about is, is sort of spreading that work into dentistry. And we just recently launched some similar work in dentistry, which I think, again, could be powerful. Um, but but I, I just totally agree. It's, it's, it's beautifully simple. Um, this is not certainly the... Uh, the hardcore science that I, I think I started in. And yet I look at it and say... Um, we've made really meaningful change. And now we spread that work across our state. So as we said, we put the prescribing recs across our state, um, and we are um, pushing those recs at a state level. And we have other groups interested in those uh, uh, those recs outside of our state. Um, we're certainly hoping that other major institutions were in early talks with other institutions just to sign on to our recs because um, we don't really feel like we want – we need to own these. We want engagement. If every institution out there has to go through the, what we went through to get recommendations, then we're not really helping the health of our country. We really want people to contribute where they have data, um, advise in places where they think we may have made a mistake or maybe missed. Um, but most importantly, just get buy-in to have more groups around the country use this. There's certainly national societies out there that are interested in this, and we're happy to partner with national societies. At the same time, um, you know, for us, this is not a political issue. It's not um, one that anyone needs to own, and we just want to move bigger and faster and make change today. Yeah, that's great. Now, are your prescribing guidelines on your website? Yeah, there's a link from the from the website, so I, I think it, it just is another sign of how we're really, really trying not to sort of own this or brand this. We made a, a new website that you can find from the michigan-open.org, um, but we made a third website called Opioid Prescribing Info. And, and the reason for that is, again, trying to get engagement from other groups with the hope that other groups will help populate that. And we certainly we have, we have some collaborators at, at UNC, um, Chapel Hill. Uh, in South Carolina and elsewhere that will hopefully be contributing to these wrecks as we go forward. And we hope, you know, um, as I said, when I, my time out at Johns Hopkins, I hope, I hope we can get, um, you know, Hopkins to even sign onto these wrecks. Absolutely. Tell me one more time what that other website is, opioid. Opioidprescribing.info. 
prescribing.info. Okay, so we'll put both that and the Michigan Open website on the show notes here. Um, but that's great that you guys are doing that and have them available. I'm sure people will want to check them out. So in you mentioned that um, people have a huge number of pills obviously left over because they're getting way overprescribed. They're sticking them in their medicine cabinets. And then one thing that you've done uh, that I remember you talked about when you were here is to organize some pill drives to try to get people to uh, clean out their medicine cabinets, obviously, so that we don't have kids or anyone else getting access to those medications uh, who, and then potentially getting addicted to opioids. And so tell me a little about that. How, how do those work and how have you organized those? Yeah, so I was at an ASRA meeting about four years ago, and uh, Joe Ranazizi, who was formerly with the DEA, gave a talk, and I was just really inspired to do something. Um, I run a large research team, and this even predates the Michigan Open Group, um, and we have a guiding principle of service to our community, and we were doing some really ex- excellent community service work as a way to grow and give back, but we weren't really doing anything about pain or opioids, and I just saw this as an opportunity to do something bigger, so we held a single drive in Ann Arbor um, together with our police department, and we got 40 pounds of pills in a four-hour period, and I was just ecstatic. I thought that was incredible, um, but it, our Drives kept getting bigger and bigger and started going to the point where we were getting two and 300 pounds in a four-hour period just in Ann Arbor. And with the new Michigan Open Platform and this sort of statewide opportunity, we were able to take a next step, which is to engage hospitals in another state. And so in September of last year, we had about um, eight sites around our state, including the Upper Peninsula. For those that know their Michigan ge- geography, they'll know uh, about our UP um, that's been decimated by the opioid epidemic. Um we, we got together for one four-hour period. We got about 900 pounds of pills together in, in eight cities. And, wow. and really, I think the most important thing we did, just to be very clear, is we created community awareness of the ill effects of leaving unused pills in your medicine cabinet. And that, that to me is the most important thing. We get excited about pounds of pills, but as I said, with potentially a billion pills in excess from surgery alone each year, um, we know for sure we didn't necessarily um, change things in a way that's going to revolutionize um, our, our overdose rates. But hopefully we got people aware through just our advertising, even if they couldn't make the event. And we've actually made a, a website for our state, and the DEA has a website, but basically a website for our state to people for people to think about everyday disposal options. And we're even working towards some more in-home disposal options. There are some activated charcoal bags that allow for in-home disposal. And we've done a trial this summer that we're just wrapping up um, to look at that as an option to make it really easy for people to dispose of their medications because currently it's too hard. Um, We are now positioning for our our spring drive, which happens here in a couple months. And right now it looks like we're going to have about 20 to 25 cities around our state um, really starting to fill in the state. And uh, we're in the process of ideally we're we're pitching a uh, national drive uh, through a a new grant mechanism. And so um, we really believe that we can do this. And just to try to make it easier, I'll, I'll put this out to anybody who's inspired by this work because yeah. this is really awesome community engagement. Um, we've actually made a toolkit on our website, on the Michigan Open website, where um, it gives you that we've got a video in there just sort of describing what we do or why we did it. Um, we have um, an executive summary that describes what you need to do. And then we have a, a more detailed toolkit of all the little things because I have a terrific admin who sort of first championed this with me and she really did a lot of the work work on this. But 
she literally just wrote down all the things that she thinks about, the tents, the tables, the duct tape, the boxes, mm-hmm. all those things um, where we want to make sure that we make it as easy as possible. And then our, our mock budget, like what we, what we pay for in a budget, in a spreadsheet, all there just to help people get started. And this is how we create engagement in our communities. So we will hold weekly phone calls as the event leads up uh, for people to call in, ask questions, and just keep everybody on track. By this point, you should be here. By this point, you should be here. And most of these things are run by um, you know, someone in the hospital, or it could even be someone in the community. That's the thing. It doesn't have to be a hospital-based activity. Um, and, and this is how we think we can expand this. And so certainly, if there's any groups out there that are interested outside of our state in doing this, and we've had other groups express interest, um, they can feel free to, to tag on. And and reach out, and we will help. Um, we will help make it happen, no matter where you are. That's uh, right. And, and I really believe that uh, we can really spread this because, again, it's about it's about creating uh, awareness and just increasing engagement. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I'm so glad you have that on the website. We'll definitely um, direct folks to that as well. So. What about what do people do if they let's say someone out there is listening? They think, oh yeah, I, you know, I had that lap coli eight years ago, and I got that Vicodin, and I'm sitting in my medicine cabinet. Uh, you know, you said it's not easy to dispose of at home. I assume people shouldn't just dump them in the toilet and flush. What you know? How how do you recommend that people get rid of them in the absence of an ongoing drive at that time that's actively collecting them? So this is a debatable topic. Um, unfortunately, the FDA currently uh, says you can uh, mix them with a uh, with a you know something like kitty litter or dog waste and put it in the garbage. Hmm. I, I personally recommend against that. They also recommend flushing in the flushing down the toilet in event in in the event that you can't. I I, I did uh, get a tweet back from the FDA recently, which um, where I kind of went back and said, hey, but you know, think about the environmental implications of flushing these down the toilet. Right. And and I've had environmentalists who uh, actually I just had an attorney who's involved in in water treatment, and he said, please don't flush these down the toilet. Once they're in the water, we can't get them out. Right? Yeah. It's not it's not like they can just uh, throw a net in there and pull them out. Right? They they're now dissolved. They're in the water, and and we know for sure for many years. Uh, there's streams in Washington, in the state of Washington, with detectable levels of antidepressants. Right, so so let's not do this for opioids. Um, and so safe disposal options are ideal. Um, there are there are communities all over the country and areas all over the country where you can safely dispose of them. In Michigan, we've made that we've made the map, but the DEA has a website. My only caution uh, in that is is that before people go out and just dis- just drive over to that pharmacy or that police station because most of them, just to be clear, will be police stations mm-hmm. or sheriff's office, and that's that's a challenge too. Where many people don't feel comfortable taking their medications back to police, and I understand that. Yep. Um, the um, the there are many pharmacies that are DEA registered that don't know they're DEA registered, and we found this in our state. They they've they've done the registration process, but they haven't developed a process for disposing of those medications. And a process is needed, right, to make sure that there's good control. Um, so so right now that that that's the best option. Um, I, I don't recommend that somebody sits around and waits for the next opioid drive. In fact, I don't even recommend that in our community. I give them today's option. Right. Um, that that's the best option. Certainly, if you're in an if you're in a community where you say, hey, there's nothing in a drivable distance for me, what do I do? Well, in that case, I, I do I do suppose that the, the, the mixing it with the unsavory substance, stick it in the garbage and throwing it away is probably, it's certainly a better option than leaving them unguarded in a medicine cabinet. Right. 
Okay. So let me switch gears a little bit. I know a fair number of primary care doctors who, you know, feel a lot of frustration. They'll get a patient maybe transferring from uh, another doctor or coming in from out of town, trying to establish care. They're already on long-term chronic opiates, and they feel a lot of frustration with kind of how to handle this. Um, what do, you, do you have any interactions with primary care doctors around this, and is there anything being done to kind of address people who are on huge numbers of opiate pills and actually using them? Yeah, so um, the primary care chronic pain issue is big and complicated, but I'll bring it back at least within our narrative to tell you what we're doing. Yeah. We um, we realize that what we're doing is actually directly affecting primary care. So we have data, again, unpublished but nearing publication, clearly showing that for those people that go down the path of new persistent use, surgeons are the dominant prescriber for three months. And then almost immediately after the three-month mark, there's a, a major drop that just basically falls off the cliff and the primary care physician takes over. And so our, 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 some of our new work is around transitions of care and thinking about tightening up that care because I, I don't think we're going to get away from prescribing opioids for some cases, right? But when a person's heading down a bad path, why is it that we wait three months to get them back in the pers- to, the, to the person who knows them best? And and probably is going to take care of them to follow. How do we tighten that up? And certainly, it's a challenge. It's hard to be a PCP today. It's hard to um, see 40 patients and then have this now challenging patient walk through your door unexpected. But you know, we need to figure out care models to do this. Um, and, and I'm not, I'm not saying we have it figured out per se, but we certainly have thoughts and, and plans around at least tightening up that care and detecting a person who might be heading down a bad path and getting them back to their primary care physician sooner. In that same way, um, preoperatively, I'm sure when we started talking about opioids as it relates to surgical care, everybody closed their eyes and pictured the most challenging uh, patient that they've cared for who's on lots of opioids and was in pain postoperatively. Uh, while that's not our primary focus today, I can tell you for sure we're doing work um, in this space in, in sort of in parallel and background. I, I think the what to do with the person not using opioids is novel. It offers a preventative opportunity to avoid new chronic use mm-hmm. um, and make people safer in their communities. However, um, we certainly appreciate the fact that um, that we'll need to do work with the chronic opioid user, and, and we have work happening in that space. It's just probably a, a more complicated topic that's going to need a little bit more time. Sure, fair enough. And, and in terms of, you know, is, can you give a basic, um, again, I'm sure there's a long answer to this, but when, when you think about the downsides of chronic opioid use, you know, is there something that you, you know, what is the kind of 30,000-foot view? What's the, what are, why do we not want people on chronic opioids? Or why do people sure. maybe not want to be on chronic opioids? What are the downsides? Yeah, so I, 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 I want to be clear. As a pain physician, I still have some patients I maintain on opioids, and I still think there are patients that do well chronically. Okay. Um, I think it's limited. Uh, I think it's certainly not at the level at which we currently prescribe. And I still don't have any patients on really high doses who are doing well. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I think that's part of what's, what the CDC's sort of, sort of dose limit recommendations were. I don't have anyone on ninety milligram, more than 90 milligrams a day oral morphine who's doing well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... And so I'm sure that that is a point of frustration. It's certainly not the focus of Michigan Open. You know, this is me now talking as a chronic pain physician. Sure. Um, but um, 
but I'll say I, I do manage patients on chronic opioids. Um, that said, we, we have data uh, from a group. Uh, Jenna Gessling uh, uh, has done some really fabulous uh, work in this space and is has a, uh, a K23 from NIDA, is doing really interesting work looking at some of the behavioral aspects associated with opioid use, the links between depression and opioid use, and, and really striking data to show. Some an article was just published in Pain Medicine recently from Jenna um, showing that um, most of our patients coming to the pain clinic, uh, more than half, right around half of them report an hour or less of pain relief from that opioid, mm-hmm. but still would sort of globally call it beneficial. And so I, I think we have to unpack it and understand that's a big part of what Jenna's work is doing is trying to understand how people perceive benefit, how we help them maybe see that these, these haven't been helpful. Because I can tell you in the clinic, I spend a lot of time with patients sort of taking them through their history. Let's talk about your opioid use. Let's talk about how your pain is, your function is. And when you, when you work people through this, there's a lot of times that you can bring a person down and say, are you really better? Right. Right. And, and, and many times they're not. But then the concern that I completely empathize with for patients is they're now scared. If I come off, I'm going to be a lot worse. Right. And, and we've been weaning people off opioids for years in our pain clinic. And, and what I can tell you is um, sometimes that requires replacement therapy with something like buprenorphine. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes it's just about weaning them down or off. And, and while people's pain may not be better, so in other words, this opioid-induced hyperalgesia, you take them off and the theory would be their pain would get better, that doesn't always happen. However, what does happen in a person you can get to wean off is this. Their pain may not be better, but they're more functional. They're more awake. Their mood's better. And you see it from their families in particular. The family member will sit there and say, thank you for giving me my mother back. Yeah. That's, a, that's a very clear memory. Or the um, younger guy with two young kids who said, I feel like I'm a part of my kid's life again. I still have my pain, but it's certainly no worse. It's no better, but it's no worse. And but I am now interacting with my family again, and those are those are the things that I think people don't. You know, we can't just make it about pain. You have to look at the global effects, and opioids definitely um, are, are associated with depression in both directions, and 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 don't necessarily always improve function, right. and they can actually make you very. Um, <laughs> they can really you know decimate function, and I think it's just it's a it's an incredibly complicated, packed topic that merits of uh, future research. I also think it's um, so complicated. It is the reason we didn't start there as a group because we really felt like that's where most of the country's focus is right now, is what to do with, with folks. And, and there is some great research, not only in our institution, but at other institutions. There's groups, the University of Washington, who are doing great work around this. Great. All right. Well, that's great. That's a nice overview of that. Let me ask you about anesthesiologists uh, who are not pain physicians, and what role we play. So, you know, we're not, you, we're not almost ever prescribing opiates. Um, and our main role, as you know, is in the operating room and in the recovery room, um, some of us in the ICU. But let's stick to just the, the general anesthesiologist who's in the operating room and the recovery room. What role or what do we know about the role that that plays? Should we be trying to reduce the amount of opiates we give in, intraoperatively and in the, in the recovery room? Um, and, and what do we know about that? So it's a great question. Um, and it's one for which, um, I think there's a lot of controversy in the community mm-hmm. and I'm going to unpack it cause I kind of look, I'm going to look at it in sort of three different components. One is the anesthesiologist in the operating room and this idea of opioid free anesthesia. Um, so I don't think that there are some data suggesting the fact that 
uh, patients who get fentanyl and remifentanil in the operating room use more opioids postoperatively and maybe have more pain. We don't really know what that means for long-term outcomes. We really, really don't know what that means for long-term outcomes. And I'm not ready yet to say that opioid-free anesthesia is, is, is the answer. Um, I think it's also important to remember that your state of consciousness might matter. Uh, my colleague George Mashur would talk about how uh, the patients who are under a general anesthetic who get ketamine, that that effect of ketamine is different when you're under a GA versus when you're awake, mm-hmm. right? And so, so we really need to kind of maybe consider how we're giving and what it gives. That said, I, I, while I don't think that there's evidence to yet support opioid-free anesthesia as a requirement or a path forward to fix the opioid epidemic, um, I will caution to say that it's actually okay for anesthesiologists maybe to pause and just ask that question. We, we have a tendency, especially as we've kind of more tightly regulated how we manage our medications perioperatively, to just give that last 50 mics because it's easier than, than, than sort of wasting it or mm-hmm. monitoring it. Um, and also, you know, to give very liberally with the idea that you're not changing that person's course. I, I think I, a cautious, thoughtful use of opioids perioperatively is appropriate. I just gave a, a grand rounds to ophthalmology the other day, said, and their question to me was, does every single patient coming in for cataract surgery need 12 and a half or 25 mics of fentanyl? Because <laughs> that's what they all get. My answer is no, right? And this is the problem. We have become maybe too routine, too protocolized. And while, while, while I'm spending a lot of my time asking surgeons to think more, I do think anesthesiologists should pause and think, and we can change our care. Um, but the opioid-free anesthesia, I think, merits good research. And having groups out there, and there are groups out there sort of say, I've done a 1,000 cases without opioids, and all my patients are doing better. That's that's tough, right? I mean, there's lots of things that go into perioperative care. There's also studies floating around that look at, um, uh, you know, the use of regional blocks and some of our multimodal techniques and, and long-term outcomes. And nothing's jumping off the page in terms of like this changing the rates of new dependence. However, I will say before we say the anesthesiologist doesn't matter, one important gap right now is you're right. We don't prescribe. And so in that person who we make a lot better after surgery, they have very little pain. They use very little opioids. They still go home with 60 pills. Right. Why? And, and one of the articles that recently came out that was published in um, JAX, uh, the Journal of American College of Surgeons uh, by the Hill Hill and um, Barth from Dartmouth showed that one of the best predictors of how much a person would use after they leave the hospital is how much they used in the day before they left the hospital. Mm. And I think that's really interesting, right? So as an anesthesiologist, what's your role? Well, if, a, if you're part of the acute pain service and you see a person hasn't used any opioids and they give them 70 pills to go home with, can you have just an informed conversation? It doesn't have to be aggressive. Just a, hey, by the way, did you know that for the last day, uh, Mrs. Jones didn't use any pills or only used one pill. Right. And, and, and just get people to think a little bit about this and have that conversation. Um, and and I, I guess as an anesthesiologist, what I would love to see, granted I'm a chronic pain physician, and granted I primarily do clinical research today, right? So I don't, I'm not in the trenches doing this every day. I appreciate that, and I know it's different. I would love to see anesthesiologists step up to the table and say, we're going to do um, transition of care medicine as it relates to opioids and pain care. We're going to provide the forum through which people can come in and get preoperative optimization. We don't know that weaning people off opioids before surgery makes them better or changes their outcomes. We know patients on higher 
doses or those just using opioids before surgery have worse outcomes. We know that for sure, right? But what we don't know is, can you reverse that? I, I can say this, though. Optimizing patients, even if they don't wean down, and setting expectations and making plans, I don't think anybody's going to have trouble saying that that's going to improve care, right? Right. And more importantly, let's not just do preoperative optimization. Let's see people postoperatively. Let's manage people. And if we wanted to think about our role and how this relates to primary care, well, if we were able to tell primary care physicians, hey, by the way, uh, we're going to promise that that person is not going to come back to you any worse than they came in. So postoperatively, if they came in on, on 50 oral morphine equivalents preoperatively, I'm not going to send them back to you until they're on 50 or less. Right. And I got to say, I, I, I'm, I'm going to, I don't know, I, if I look at my academic career, part of the reason that I've been successful is because early on somebody told me I couldn't do something. It was very simple. I had someone from the FDA tell me I couldn't do something, and that just struck me wrong, and I, I, I went and I did it. And I hope that on the, the listening today, there are people out there that are going to be bothered what I'm, by, by what I'm about to say. But I think anesthesiologists won't take this opportunity. Uh-huh. I think as a specialty, we will let this opportunity sail by us and someone else will do it. And we will have internists and psychiatrists managing acute pain. And while I think that internists and psychiatrists could add huge value in an integrated system, they don't understand acute pain the way an anesthesiologist understands acute pain. And there is an opportunity here that's right in front of us that is good for the healthcare system, it's good for society, and I would love to see anesthesiologists step up to the plate. But I don't think it'll happen. And I hope, I hope there's several people listening today that'll prove me wrong. I hope so, too. That's, that's a great. I, I think that's exactly right. We, uh, it's, it's always easy to keep doing what you're doing, but harder to step up and, and make a change. Um, so thanks for saying that. So uh, lastly, I want to ask, um, you know, we think a lot about uh, multimodal treatment for pain these days. And one thing that comes up a lot is that, you know, there are other pain medicines, obviously, than just opioid pain medicine. So we've got, I think, the, the two big ones, right, are the NSAID group and then Tylenol. Uh, we use a lot of Tylenol, and we tend to very rarely uh, give, for example, Toradol postoperatively, with the exception of some specific cases, um, because surgeons don't want it. And so my question for you is, is that, does the evidence back that up, or should we be using more NSAIDs postoperatively? I think we should definitely be using more NSAIDs postoperatively. Um, there are meta-analyses that come out that show that short courses of NSAIDs don't have the adverse effects that everybody's worried about. And I think if we look about if we look at morbidity and we say what's morbidity associated with overprescribing of opioids versus what's the morbidity of a short course of NSAIDs, it unambiguously favors the NSAID. Mm-hmm. And so there's certainly patients for whom we want to be careful. Those patients that have, you know true peptic ulcer disease or really impaired, um, you know, renal function or some other contraindication to an NSAID, which is a small portion of our population, right? It's a small portion of our population. And uh, we have greatly undervalued uh, acetaminophen and non-steroidals. And I think a challenge back to our surgeons, because we are uh, in many ways in anesthesia in in a service role um, and don't get to necessarily make that decision, is to to just sort of say, um, we're going to reevaluate the true risk associated with non-steroidals and, and apply a, a more logical framework to how we decide who does and doesn't get non-steroidals. I certainly think non-steroidals are going to be a critical piece of what we hope to do, which is actually eliminate opioids from some surgeries. Well, I, I, we're talking about reduction 
per cases. But I actually believe there are many surgeries out there today where if you go back 25 years ago, people never got them and did pretty well. Mm-hmm. And today, always get them. And I think if we really want to move the needle, um, there we, we need to create expectation. And I, I talked to our local newspaper earlier today, sort of said, you know, it's also incumbent upon the lay press to reframe, to help us reframe the narrative and have people coming in understanding that there are some surgeries for which opioids shouldn't be expected. Right. And, and, I, and I think that that other things like nonsteroidals and and acetaminophen are critical. I, I think there's. You know, the, the gabapentin, the duloxetine, those are harder to really fully understand, right? And, and they're, the, the data are more mixed. But boy, um, low-hanging fruit with nonsteroidals and acetaminophen. Right. Yeah, there was an interesting uh, piece, I think, in the New York Times recently that was uh, written by a woman who had been in Europe for some procedure. And uh, I think it had – it was a – It was a hysterectomy. Life. It was a hysterectomy. Okay, yeah. And didn't yeah. get – I think didn't get prescribed any opiates when she went home and she couldn't believe it and, and thought this was going to be terrible and ended up, of course, being fine. But the expectation, because she's American, was to, that she would get all these opiates. Yeah, they gave her tea. That's right. That's <laughs> that, right. Tea. that was what they recommended. They recommended to that she pick her favorite tea. That's and right. you know, I, 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 we've done this. We, our group went over to Europe and we asked questions. I think um, Americans should feel better to know that while they prescribe less in Europe, they also don't know how much people use after they leave the sur- surgery. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and so, so no one really knows, right? It's just that. It's just they don't prescribe as much, and I think their patients don't expect as much. And I, I do empathize uh, with the surgeon uh, who says, um, you know, people expect this, and I'm worried about satisfaction. But we published an article in JAMA last year showing that there was no association between the number of pills prescribed and satisfaction. And that's why I always say if you want to improve satisfaction, um, consult a customer service organization. Here we have a, a great sandwich shop, uh, Zingerman's, who, yeah. and they, they offer uh, great customer service training. And they've changed our customer service in the pain clinic. In a pain clinic where we wean people off opioids and don't inject unless we think it's appropriate, we have a 95% satisfaction rating. And it's, it's really because satisfaction isn't about pills prescribed. It's about how you care for people and how you yep. treat them. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Two other quick things that come to mind. I want to ask you about tramadol. I think we often think or are told that tramadol is a, you know, if, if, they, if, opi- if um, Tylenol and maybe an NSAID aren't enough, uh, that tramadol is safer than, let's say, uh, oxycodone. Is that true? How do you think about tramadol? So I, I think there are medications like oxycodone, which seem to be particularly bad players. Um, however, all opioids have addiction potential. And in the U.K., they have a tramadol epidemic, right? So they predominantly prescribe tramadol. I think there is something to be said about some of the metabolism variants that we see in people, which is probably comes down to where some of the uh, pharmacogenetics might come in play. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but you know, tramadol can lead to addiction, and there are people that get addicted to tramadol. We, uh, there was an article on NPR about how Boko Haram are using tramadol in Africa to um, get people addicted and, and, you know, can perpetuate terror. And so, you know, these are things that we don't think about because we sort of think about tramadol. I have many people say, I don't use opioids, I use tramadol. Right. Right. That's common. I I hear that almost every week. And, you you know, people are surprised when you say, well, actually, tramadol is a weak mu agonist, but it is still a mu agonist. And for somebody who is a rapid metabolizer, it might be a pretty good mu agonist, right? Right. So so it has that potential. Uh, Is it safer I don't know that we have any data to say that yet, and I think it still requires that you're you're careful with how you prescribe and you're thoughtful for how you care with how you care for patients. Great. And then my last question is, you know, if we've got a billion 
unused pills in this country. That's a billion unused, but it's also a billion pills that are getting made. If we're successful, if you and your group, and if it spreads, and, and we, we as, a, uh, as a profession are successful in vastly reducing this number, that's, that's a huge uh, number of pills that won't need to be made. Are drug companies um, on board with this? Are they pushing back? Is, are they involved at all? How's that playing out? I have thankfully been able to stay off of a radar yet. Uh, I don't know how long this is going to happen. Uh, there are some people who have been more involved in the CDC guidelines who have um, sort of, you know, been on the radar of some of these companies. I will say this for that for um, for the medicines we use for acute pain, they're primarily generic. Mm-hmm. They're cheap. There are certain there's certainly profit to be made though from 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 making these medications. Um, and we haven't had any pushback yet. Um, it may come, but it may not come from some of the big pharmaceutical companies that have been frequently named in lay press. Mm-hmm. I don't think I, I don't think I need to say them here. Everybody knows who they are. Sure. Um, but it may be more through both the generic companies and the third-party distributors. Who, yeah, I mean, certainly they they profit from that. I mean, it wasn't very many years ago. I think it was back in 2012 that hydrocodone was the most commonly prescribed medication in the United States. Right. I mean, that's striking, right? More than antibiotics, more than anything. It was the most commonly prescribed medication in the U.S. And now it's still, I think, top five. I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure it's, it's still in the top five. So, so yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's, there's potential financial implications and people are going to be concerned. But um, uh, we, we move forward with a, a path of trying to make people healthier, doing it uh, with patients in the middle, really trying to attend to their care and make sure we're still caring for patients. And, 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 you know, I know there's this concern about opioid hysteria and that, that it's not a real epidemic. Well, and that if, you know, there was an article in Politico just yesterday saying, well, if, even if we reduce today, mortality won't, 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 won't change today. It won't change today, but, but I hope you and I aren't talking 10 years from now and talking about 300 deaths per day. Yeah. And, and, and that's where we're heading. And so, so we'll, we'll, Prescribing changes affect mortality today? Probably not. But I, I have a long view here, and I want, I want to know that in 10 years, we're going to be in a better position. And I think we can make changes that are faster than that, but, but I do believe that we have uh, a lot of work to do. It's just that the idea that prescribing changes won't change mortality, so we shouldn't do anything well, that's inherently flawed. There's no question. Increased prescribing led to increased mortality. The links are there, and it's happened. In the same way, while there might be a lag, we need to decrease. Absolutely. Chad, thank you so much. Uh, is there anything else that we didn't go over that you think we should cover before we the only, end? The only thing I'll say is I know there's a lot of hospitals out there that are forming the committee to make the materials to give to patients. Michigan Open has made patient materials specific to acute care. We are making some for primary care, but right now if you're doing anything around surgery, dentistry, et cetera. We've actually made really engaging pamphlets, colorful pamphlets with pictures and, and done with a graphic designer. And I'll, I'll, one thing that's really important, if, if, if someone sends us a high resolution logo of their hospital, we will actually put this logo on the, on the patient information and send it back at no cost for you to use in your hospital system. We want these to be used and all the energy and information you were going to, all the energy and time you're going to spend with that committee to make the material, use that time to figure out how to effectively disseminate the information. That would be a big win for us. 
We'd love feedback on it. We'd love to know if it works, and we'd love to know that you're using it. But right now, we have uh, major hospital systems in nine states using it, and it's only been available for about a month and a half. So, so we've we've found that people enjoy it and they they appreciate it. And if you go to Michigan-Open.org, there's a contact us site where where we can help make that happen. That is fantastic and incredibly generous of you guys. Uh, so thanks for saying that. Check out the website Michigan-Open.org uh, and check out those materials. Chad, thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the show. It's been fantastic and inspirational and i hope people uh follow your lead thanks chad i really appreciate it all right bye all right well that was fantastic i hope people really got a lot out of hearing about chad's work that he's doing there uh, and really check out the website there are all kinds of materials, including those free available materials for your hospital if you want them, um, ways to get involved. So really check that out. Uh, and go to our website at ACRAC.com where you can uh, leave a comment on this or any of the other episodes. Let us know. What do you think about Chad's work? Are you interested in getting involved? Are you doing anything similar? Um, and what do you think about the opioid crisis? We can all learn from what you have to say when you leave a comment on the website. That's ACCRAC.com. I'm also interested to hear what you think about intraoperative opioid use. I tell my residents I hardly ever use fentanyl with induction. I prefer Esmolol. There's no reason to use fentanyl for induction. It's not painful the way surgery is painful. So I use Esmolol to blunt the sympathetic response and then use fentanyl or Dilaudid if you need it for pain later. But what's your practice? We can all learn. I'm interested to hear what other people out there are doing. Are you trying to limit opioid use in the operating room? And if so, how are you doing it? All right. And remember, if you are a fan of the show, consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It helps other people find the show when they're looking for an anesthesia podcast to listen to. And of course, if you're interested in helping with the costs of making the show, you can become a patron of ACRAC by going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C. And you can sign up. Even just a dollar or two makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. All right, that is it for today. Thanks for listening. For the ACRAC podcast and Dr. Chad Brummett, I am Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.